Hello, I'm Eric Topol, Editor-in-Chief of Medscape, and I'm delighted to have with me today Zeke Emanuel, who is the uh, Chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. Zeke, welcome. Nice to be here with you. No, it's terrific. And I, it, what, we could get into so many topics because clearly you've had a big influence on healthcare policy in the United States with the Affordable Care Act and so many things. But today, the topic I thought would be of special interest is the physician shortage. And I wanted to go back to, I think your writings are multiple. There was a, a note, uh, notable op-ed in the New York Times back in December 13 with none other than our current FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb. And then more recently, you reacted to a AAMC report uh, that was uh, published in JAMA in print in May with subsequent correspondence that went back and forth, uh, as you might expect, because there's a lot, a lot of controversy uh, in September. So why don't you give us like your, your kind of opening sense about physician shortage in the U.S.? Well, you know, the interesting thing, Eric, is if you look through history, everyone's always predicting we got this terrible physician shortage. Um, and yes, there are lots of problems, you know, delays in getting an appointment, spot shortages in certain specialties, especially pediatric subspecialties like pediatric GI or pediatric cardiology. But if you look at the issue of primary care doctors, um, I think the uh, notion of a shortage is greatly exaggerated. Uh, and what we initially did, it occurred to me literally one night in a dream, it's like, if there are, how can we, there be a shortage? Let's just calculate how many doctors we have, how many patients we have, and what the actual, you know, match is. And initially we did it two ways. We said, all right, if you're going to have uh, every doctor have 2,000 patients in their panel, and we have 320 million Americans, how many primary care doctors do you actually need? Let's just do the long division. This isn't a complicated math problem requiring differential equations. And then the other way is, if you imagine we have a billion outpatient visits in the United States, and each one is half an hour, how many doctors do you need to take those billion outpatient visits? And again, not a lot of math, it's basic division, um, and it's a really surprising, we have more than enough primary care docs to satisfy all that. So the question is, why is everyone feeling like there's a shortage? And my intuition is, we're just bad at managing that time. And uh, probably bad in two ways. One, we have doctors doing a lot of things that they should never be doing. Uh, filling out paperwork, arranging for tests and treatments that you don't need an MD Three, at least three years of post-MD training to really do, and so we're not maximizing our doctor time. And the second is, we have doctors doing a lot of appointments with patients that don't require appointments at all, follow-up visits uh, and things like that. And so I, I remember, you know, you're, you're a cardiologist, you probably can tell stories like this as well, but I remember when I was training for uh, becoming an a breast oncologist and treating breast cancer patients. And I was told, you know, after women who have early stage breast cancer, you remove the lump, uh, you give them six months of chemotherapy, you then bring them back every three months uh, to uh, get follow-up. And I'm like, where did that come from? You know, right after you finish the chemotherapy, they probably should be the lowest risk of cancer coming back. Every three months sounds like overkill to me. Do we have any data that 
So, you know, no data, no, no evidence that that's the right sort of time sequence, et cetera. And so I think we end up with this uh, general overkill uh, for a lot of sequences. And then there's a lot of minor stuff like women with urinary tract infections, you treat the urinary tract infection. You don't need to see them again. You can just check in by text message or something pretty low tech. So I think there's a lot of this uh, 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 unnecessary use of the physician's time. Okay. So I understand you're getting at uh, paraprofessional uh, help. You're getting at some of the current technology that we're not using enough of, whether that's things like texting. And um, I, I'm sure you would be uh, supportive of telemedicine, virtual visits, that sort of thing. But one of the things that the AMC, the AAMC report, which they really zoomed in on, you know, they were big on these three things. One is that the aging of the population. Yeah. Is it big about the aging of doctors and the fact that doctors are, are uh, half of them are well over 50 or 55 even, and they're retiring and burnout, they're reducing their, their, their effort. And then uh, the, this whole issue about, you know, uh, the lengthy work hours today and how that's just unsustainable. So the AAMC probably has what you would say, not the, oh, by the way, it, you, you also underscored that our medical school number has increased from 125 to 145. That's a big right. And our uh, medical trainees have increased from almost 30% in, in recent years. So how do you square away their assertions and, and your math and views? <laughs> well, first of all, this issue of the aging of the population, we've had a aging of the population uh, for a long time now. And I think, again, one of the issues we've learned is that, yes, the population ages, they have more chronic illness, but uh, the best way of uh, attacking the chronic illness and managing it may not be with more doctor numbers, but with more chronic care coordinators who take responsibility for reaching out to patients. So again, the issue is, yes, we will have more patients with chronic illness, but is the solution there more doctor hours? That's the underlying assumption of the AAMC, and I think that assumption is erroneous. Um, uh, the other issue is uh, we are moving a lot of services out of the hospital, um, and that is going to require more people. But I'm not sure, again, this is mainly a doctor problem. When you look at the aging of the doctor population, I do think the AMC has a point, which is, you know, a lot of doctors in the older generation, uh, uh, above my age and your age, you know, they used to work like maniacs. My father uh, was like, you know, a 70-hour work week was like normal, um, and the current generation doesn't want to work so much. But uh, as I point out, we have more doctors now uh, than we've had, um, and even when you do the math and being pretty generous on the math, 30 minute primary care appointments, 200 workdays, we're not talking about weekend workdays, not extended hours, you know, 12, uh, uh, 12 uh, slots a day per primary care doctor. Even under very conservative estimates of not overworking the doctor, you got more than enough uh, slots to handle the billion appointments that we're going to have that we have every year in the outpatient setting. So I, I just don't think the double AMC's math ever worked out. They always use, okay, docs per thousand population, that, but that's not the number you want. The number you want is 
how many visits do we need or have, and can we manage that with the current crop of doctors working at a reasonable pace? Now, many doctors work more than the sort of uh, 12 slots a day that we allocated to them, and that's because they need the money or they want the money uh, of additional appointments. But that's a very different issue than a shortage based upon sheer numbers. That's about how much income doctors want to make. Right, right. Now, there's a maldistribution issue, which is a biggie, with yeah. one, one fifth of the American population in rural areas. Uh, and that adding more doctors doesn't seem to be the fix for that, right? Right. So, uh, you know, if you were an economist, you would say, all right, we got to get supply equal demand and, you know, we'll just make more docs and we'll force them out of New York City or San Francisco and they'll go to North Dakota. But we know that's garbage. I mean, one of the two main ideas is, first of all, we should be very clear. No country, it's not just the United States, not Canada, not Australia, not other countries with big rural populations has ever solved the male distribution of the fact that doctors, uh, highly trained, do not want to relocate to small rural cities. Uh, the main reason is, you know, they want a lot of the social amenities that come along with a high socioeconomic status. Those tend to be located in uh, larger urban areas and getting this very talented pool out into rural areas just is not going to happen unless you literally force them and we're against forcing doctors. Even places like Canada that, that sort of coerce doctors require that they train up in rural areas, the moment their uh, indentured servitude is done, they leave. Uh, so I don't think uh, more doctors are gonna solve that maldistribution problem. Um, and so we need to address it by you know, more allied healthcare professionals, telemedicine, and other ways of linking the rural population and, more, and physicians in more urban centers. And that's especially true for specialty care, right? You know, there just aren't enough I mean, in here, we might have a, a genuine shortage, but that's a, of a different kind. There may not be enough pediatric cardiologists or pediatric uh, uh, rheumatologists, um, but they're never going to be in North Dakota. That's, that's a problem you're only, only going to solve uh, by sort of changing the amount we reimburse them and linking them when patients need their services in rural areas by telemedicine or MD, MD consults um, via the, the web. So I think. I think this rural patient population, it, it, it's, it's a hard nut to crack, but it's not going to be solved by uh, training more docs. Okay. Now, another a metric that is used a lot in this whole story is wait times. Yeah. And you know, uh, Zeke, that the wait times in places like Boston to see a primary care doctor are more than six weeks, and the average is well over three weeks for the United States. And the, the idea is, oh, that's been creeping up, so that ex, that, that's a surefire way of, of saying we, we don't have enough doctors. Your thoughts about that? Yeah, so uh, first of all, it's very interesting. They did look at wait times after Massachusetts expanded access, uh, and a large part of the fear is, look, you're gonna add millions of more people, you're not adding doctors to cover millions of more people getting health insurance, wait times are gonna go up, no evidence that that was true. Uh, I don't know that anyone has seen, despite the fact that we added 22 million Americans through the Affordable Care Act, seen general wait times around the country go up. Um, and wait times is not a function, I don't think, of doctor supply, it's a function of how you manage doctor time. So one of the things um, uh, that I've mentioned is, you know, I went around the country looking at places that are providing high quality, low cost care, 
um, uh, and doing a very good job. And one of the things you notice is they have what's called open access scheduling. Uh, between 20 and 50% of the physician's uh, slots at the start of the day are open mm. um, and unscheduled and no patients there so that patients can walk in or patients can call and say, hey, you know what, I've got some free time. Can I get my annual exam or whatever um, at, or see the primary care doctor? And that uh, management style, again, uh, actually uh, ironically opens up additional free time in doctor's schedules because you have fewer no-shows where doctors had a patient, but the patient either forgot or something else intervened. Um, so there's a lot of mechanisms you can do to actually reduce that wait time. Uh, I noticed that your old institution, the Cleveland Clinic, um, went to same-day appointments, and I think it was last year, did a million same-day appointments. So it's possible to do this open access scheduling, get people in on the same day. And that actually, ironically, because of the no-show uh, issue, can get you uh, uh, increase efficiency and decrease the wait times. Okay. Now, that brings up the issue of healthcare costs. So, um, you know, we after the first line item of the $3.4 or whatever it is right now, the, the, after the hospitals, it's docs that are the next. Right. The, the concern that you express would be, well, you know, we, if we actually increase doctors like the AAMC is ordering up, we're actually going to increase costs. Is that true? Right. So um, economists like to say, you know, supply equals demand. And if, if we've got this big demand of a billion office visits and we've got these long wait times, we need to increase supply and that'll even out. But we also know that in healthcare. Uh, supply and demand don't work that way. Uh, we have what's called supply-induced demand. That is, you know, how often are you supposed to see a diabetic patient in follow-up? There's no evidence-based guideline, evidence-based guideline. And uh, so you got a lot of doctors chasing uh, diabetic patients. You'll have doctors see more patients and just increase costs with no added benefit. We've seen this over and over again. Florida has very high utilization because they got a lot of doctors down there for the old people, too many doctors given the population, and you end up with very high utilization, very high cost, but no evidence that it leads to better care and some evidence that it actually leads to worse care because you're giving people unnecessary care, you're giving people inefficiently delivered care. One doctor who practices down there and uh, runs a capitated system and is responsible for total cost of care, he says, you know, what you end up seeing is uh, you know, hospitals that have 70 cardiologists on staff, small, relatively small community hospitals with 70 cardiologists, and they're doing all sorts of unnecessary catheterizations, putting in uh, um, uh, pacemakers and other things in marginal cases. Um, and he says, you know, you're just driving uh, a cost by, because you've got this big supply of doctors who need to meet a certain income threshold, and so they end up producing a lot of unnecessary care and just driving up total healthcare costs. That's not a place to be. We made that mistake. Richard Nixon, again, in the 70s thought, oh, just increase the number of medical schools, increase doctors, and we'll bring healthcare costs down. Has exactly the opposite uh, effect. Increase the number of doctors, you will increase healthcare costs because they write prescriptions, they write, they write uh, for services like x-rays and other things. And so that's not a good way of, uh, of approaching the problem. Well, you've made a really good argument here uh, uh, that goes against almost, almost every point in the AAMC report. Would you say the AAMC is 
got a conflict of interest in <laughs> well it, it it is an institution that has talked about um if you go back to their reports for decades talked about shortage 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 yep. yeah and one of the reasons is you know they do represent medical schools and medical schools uh, uh, um get you know uh want uh, more they want, they want to be more of them uh, so that they have increased uh, authority and uh, they want more slots. Uh, but that's, uh, you know, a lot of medical schools have actually been shrinking like the University of Chicago. Um, and I think it's, uh, uh, we really do need to be much more critical of their position. Um, and I think it's not just medical schools, and, but also postgraduate training, internship and residencies. Do we need all of those slots um, we have a lot of slots, and it's not clear that those slots are geared to the trainees. They're often geared towards, you know, satisfying hospital uh, overnight coverage situations and services. I've always noted um, that, you know, the places with the few number of trainees, like dermatology or radiation therapy, they don't have a lot of overnight coverage. Places where you have the large number of trainees, it's really about overnight coverage. That is not the way the system ought to work. Um, right. And I think we really need to rethink uh, that, um, you, you know, we train not only the doctors we graduate here, but we bring in foreign medical graduates uh, to fill all the residency slots. Question is, is that a good use of our uh, resources or ought we to think about overnight coverage in different ways? Yeah, no, I, I see your point. And, you know, for the 30 years that I've been a physician, I never heard anything but physician shortage. It's been out yeah. Long and you know, as you know, it's now projected there could be more than a hundred thousand shortage of doctors between now and the next twelve years, which is seems a little uh, far fetched. Now, we've talked a lot about the math and the economics, uh, but we haven't really gotten into the the, the really downtrodden spirit, the deepest depression, morale, as you know, suicides. Uh, it's there. What could be done to, to titrate that, to make, make things better for physicians? Because they, they really do care for patients, but they're getting burnout left and right. So I think we have to look at what's the cause of that burnout. Now, one of the causes undoubtedly is the electronic health record and the way it works. Um, and the question is, uh, is there a tech solution that can make those electronic healthcare records work better for doctors so they're not so onerous to use and actually uh, uh, don't just add time to doctors. Uh, second thing that I think is really, really important is uh, a lot, there are a lot of administrative hassles on doctors, speed bumps as it were, where the sole purpose is to create hassles so that doctors, uh, uh, it'll, you know, add time and effort to doctors, like ordering an MRI or ordering a CT scan. You know, insurance companies put these uh, burdens in precisely because they want to create hassles for doctors. That's the goal is right. to create a, a impediment to ordering these tests. So I think if we change payments, so doctors have more autonomy, they're responsible for the money, but they also have more autonomy in how it's spent. You may actually increase doctor satisfaction rather than decrease doctor satisfaction. I've noted that, um, you know, a lot of orthopedic surgeons report that they're happier once they're under bundle payment, uh, because they have more control over how the money's spent. They have more satisfaction. And so one important question I think we don't know the answer to and uh, before we have the data, but and it's an important question of if we pay doctors differently and so they have more control over the money, 
are they actually going to be happier? Uh, and can you get rid of some of these administrative uh, uh, hassles that they have to go through to actually practice? That would be my hypothesis. What if we give all doctors a really good salary and there was no well, incentive to do anything but to take care of their patients? Would that help at all? Um, you know, it's a good question as to whether it's a salary would help doctors. Places that have used salary, like the VA, there have been problems with productivity. So I think you need to have a balance. Um, and salary has incentive for people who are driven and passionate up well above, and it's not motivated by money. Um, now, I don't want to say all doctors are motivated by money, but money does play a role. And so when you salary doctors and there's uh, a not that intrinsic motivation, you might end up with low productivity. And I think that's been the experience of places that have done that. So I think a balance between giving doctors autonomy, which I think is really what they want. Let me practice my way. Tell me what the metrics are that you want me to hit. Give me control over the resources. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that probably would, uh, would go a long way to alleviating the burnout. You know, why was my father, despite working 70 hours a week, so happy? Well, he controlled things. He didn't have that many hassles from insurance companies uh, standing in his way of practicing the, what he thought was good medicine. And I think that's, that's the place we have to get to. And he had a tight bond with patients. And he had yeah. a lot more time with patients than typically doctors and patients have these days where yep. a length of a visit is so incredibly short. Yeah. So this has been really helpful to get your views. I mean, I think the question that I'll leave you with is, are, are you optimistic that things could get better or are we just kind of stuck where we're in, in the mud where we are right now? Where, where are we headed? No, I, I'm actually wildly optimistic about the American healthcare system. And the main reason I'm optimistic is, uh, you know, we're a great country. We have a lot of uh, people with great innovations and great entrepreneurial spirit. And we're at this moment, some of it catalyzed by the Affordable Care Act and many other factors of change in the system. And I think people are trying to drive towards a better performing system. And I think we're going to have a lot of testing of new ideas. Not all of them are going to work. A lot of them are going to fall by the wayside. But I think in the end, where the end I think is going to be at 10 or 15 years from now, we're going to have a much better system and probably more uh, doctor satisfaction as a result. So I'm optimistic about the directionality of American healthcare, uh, even though you know some aspects of it now look like they're uh, uh, probably uh, not doing too well. Right, right. Well, that's really, uh, that sanguine outlook is much appreciated. I'm sure the folks that are listening and watching this will uh, will feel good about that. So, Zeke, I want to thank you. Really great right. you, uh, on Medscape to talk about this and get your views and uh, look forward to watching all the work you're doing in medical ethics, oncology, healthcare policy, and the likes, all that to keep up the good stuff. And uh, we'll be keeping in touch with you to hopefully get you back again. Thanks a lot. Good. Thank you very much, Eric. It was a pleasure.